I love today's passage, and, and it challenges so much of how the world works. And it's just how I start. It challenges so much of how the world works. Because if we are, uh, if we are anything, we love to publicize ourselves. We do really get caught up in ourselves and what we're doing. And we like people to know what's going on. And, and we try to tell them through our pictures and our posts what's going on in life. And marketers know how to maximize your footprint and get the most out of your social media and how to get the most clicks and eyeballs and people looking at what's going on. It's a part of the world. It's a part of the world that we live in. But it's also a part of the world that Jesus lived in. It's a part, everyone pursues popularity in a certain way. They pursue being known, being found out, being seen, being liked, being exalted. That, that push for worldly fame, worldly fortune, and just people liking you. I was asked recently by a group of students, they say, well, how do you handle as a pastor, you know, just not everybody liking you? Well, sometimes really well, and other times not well at all. Really, just, it just depends on how confident I am in the Lord on any given day. Sometimes I'm really clamoring for people to like me, and other times I'm like, we're good. I don't need you to like me right now, because I know who I am. And you might be the same way, where you feel at times where it's like, gosh, I just really would like people to like me. I don't feel like anybody likes me. And so, so maybe you kind of send out the trial balloon of like uh, some post about your family or your kids because we're always willing to be liked because people like our kids. And you just see if anybody's going to give you any attention. If anybody's going to say, oh, yeah, that's nice. I'm glad you do that. I'm so glad you parent that way. Or look at, your, look at the clothes your kids are wearing. Those look like very good clothes. I wish I, wish I could buy clothes like that. Or I wish I could have that. Whatever we do to make ourselves feel better, the world knows it. Jesus' brothers know it. And Jesus doesn't care. That's what we get today. We operate. You and I operate as people who follow a risen Lord Jesus. We should have a different way of pursuing life. A completely different value system. Different things to be concerned about. Different things to exalt. And we really do, you and I, need constant calibration from the Lord. Reminding ourselves what's most important. Having his word correct us, rebuke us, teach us, train us, redirect us in times where we have lost it. Where the wheels have fallen off and we have forgotten what matters most. And we get to see this in this passage throughout John 7. But Jesus at the Feast of Booths, John 7, 1 through 13 is where we are today. And we get to see how Jesus responds when told to act in the worldly way. To gain attention and popularity. This is how Jesus responds. And he responds. It's interesting because as you already heard the passage. He's like, I will not go up. And his brothers go. And then, he's, then he goes. And you're like, wait a minute. Didn't you just say you won't go up? And then you went up? Now, any casual Bible reader looks at that and goes, Jesus, I don't think you were telling the truth. Because you said I won't go up. But then you went up. However, John, if you've been with us for a while, John to this point, we're starting to learn about Jesus and how he operates. And we realize that Jesus wasn't 
being deceptive. Jesus was being more honest than his brothers could even, even realize because they, they didn't actually know, they don't know him. John gives us that comment. Even his own brothers did not believe in him. And so we'll get to see, we'll learn about the context of the feast very briefly. See the brothers, see Jesus, see the crowds. What is going on? What do we see? Some context just so that we realize why he's in Galilee. He would not go about, verse 1 says, he wouldn't go about Judea because uh, the Jews were seeking to kill him. Where does that come from? Remember John 5, 18. He healed on the Sabbath. And in 5.18 we read, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So he knew there was hostility toward him as he would travel. Galilee's in the north, so as he would travel south, even though it might say go up, because you're actually going up in elevation, but if, the way we think about calendars, north-south, or calendars, maps. So he's in the north ministering. He's not going to go down into Judea toward Jerusalem because he knows there's hostility toward him, and he knows that his time for this type of announcement has not come. <clears throat> so that's why he's remaining. But the Feast of Booths, where we are, was one of the three pilgrimage feasts that Jewish men in particular were supposed to participate in, and it was wildly popular. It shows up throughout the Old Testament as in unique times in the calendar. So if you read Deuteronomy 16, 16, you see this. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. They shall, appear, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So they bring offering. They bring sacrifice. The Feast of Booths was one of those. The Feast of Weeks, that would be what we see as Pentecost, right? And we see in Acts chapter 2, which we were in last week on Easter, why there were so many people in Jerusalem. It was another, it was another pilgrimage feast where people from all over Israel would come together <clears throat> to offer sacrifice, to worship, to remember. So this was a popular one. Something cool about the Feast of the Feast of Booths, and everybody would kind of make tents up on their houses. They would be built along the roads as a reminder of how God protected and preserved them. But if you read in Nehemiah, when they're rediscovering God's law, and really rediscovering God's heart, you see this in Nehemiah 8, they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the Feast of the seventh month. Seventh month. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his own roof in their courts and in the courts of their house, the house of God, and in the square at the water gate and the square at the gate of Ephraim. They had all these places where they were making booths because they were remembering that they hadn't done this. Now, just because you see God say something in Deuteronomy 16, you'll do this three times a year, doesn't mean that they do it. Look, the command of God doesn't mean the obedience of the people. You know this. How many times have you said, I know what I should do, but I didn't do it. 
I know the right thing in this situation. I know what Scripture says. I know, so so because, even, even though God commanded it in Deuteronomy 16, does not mean that it was always faithfully practiced. But it was a popular time to gather. And this is where we are. We have this popular feast and at a time when other people are gathering together in Jerusalem, it would then make sense that his brothers have an idea. Now, I have three sons, and I can say this. When one hatches a plan for the others, I can't count on it to be wholesome or with the best interest of the others in mind. So let's just let's recognize that from the beginning. The brothers, I mean, anybody read Genesis lately? Remember Joseph? Yeah, brothers, brothers aside from other brothers don't generally have good ideas for the other. So there we are. We have Jesus' brothers with a great idea for Jesus. And their idea really revolves around leveraging the cultural moment to make Jesus' popularity broader, we should say. Remember, maybe, maybe they're concerned that he's lost a little bit of oomph because the crowds in John 6 have begun to leave him. Maybe they're concerned that, that his ministry doesn't have the same level of effectiveness that it once had. And so they need to help, his, help their brother out, do him a solid, and kind of jumpstart his you know, public relations career one more time. And so the brothers get together and they say to Jesus in verse 3, leave here. He's in Galilee. Remember, he's in the north. Go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. So let everybody see what you're doing. Let them, let them see in the public spaces. And they give their reasoning. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. That's their reasoning. Go down. Everyone's there. This is the time to make yourself known. Because if you really are doing work so that people will believe in you, there's no better time to do it than when you have all the eyeballs. This is why Super Bowl advertising is so expensive. Because you have everybody looking. The world shuts down on Super Bowl Sunday, and you get everybody's attention, so you can charge two, three, whatever, however many millions of dollars it is now for 30 seconds, because this is the chance you get to make an impression. And this is what Jesus' brothers are telling him. If you, if, if there's no better opportunity than right now to get this thing done. And if you feel like you're having a little bit of a PR problem in your ministry because people are leaving, this is the best time to restart that. You can start your kind of career rebuilding tour as the Messiah. But John lets us know in verse 5 with his own comment that this was not a benevolent plan. For not even his own brothers believed in him. What would the contrast be? It, because what we, see, what we see John saying is, essentially, this strategy exists because his own brothers didn't believe. This happened for, for even his, explaining why they're saying it this way, even his own brothers didn't believe. Well, what might be the response then? Response might be, if you realize Jesus is the Messiah, 
You go, you don't need help. The Messiah doesn't need help being known. He doesn't need our leg up like, man, I'm really glad that I was here because without me, Jesus wouldn't have been able to hit that. You know, he doesn't need, I got to have him set up his phone. He doesn't even know how to hit post. Like he can't do those things. And we need to be, how silly does that sound? And yet that's what his brothers are doing, trying to get him to a spot where he can be popular again. And now I, I have to say, I would, of course, not be sure if this were the case. But as Jesus' popularity grows, the brothers would get, there's his brother. Traveling around. Yeah, oh, that's, that's totally my brother. So I doubt, as we already see John's comment, not even his own brothers believed in him. Because if they did, they wouldn't be saying this. I doubt their motives were honest. But here's something we have to remember about following the Lord. And this is hard. I'm going to talk about it a little bit, maybe in a different way, at our parenting night, uh, Friday the 13th, the, parent, the parenting holiday, Friday the 13th. Uh, so uh, we'll talk about it after the service, but I hope you can make it. Uh, but this is one of the things I will share with us because this is a big burden of mine. Family distracts. Family distracts. You may have felt it when one is... Following the Lord, other family aren't, or one's passionate about God, and other family aren't, there does, you start to feel this tension, don't you? You start to feel tension between obeying God or obeying man. What does God say here versus, versus what, who, who might I disappoint? So his brothers, who seem to think popularity is important, Wondering why Jesus is remaining hidden, look for the opportunistic time to prop up their bro. But Jesus himself had spoken at times that he brings a sword. That, that his way and following him does divide. And we know that this is the case because it's even dividing him from, at this moment, his earthly family. Why? Because he's listening to his heavenly father. He obeys his heavenly father. That's what he does. And so he gives this response to his brothers, which is a rebuke of them and a statement about where they stand. So he doesn't just say, no, but you shouldn't do this. He actually goes deeper than that with how he speaks to them. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, now Jesus is not interested in humoring his brothers, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about, about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now, we'll see in verse 10 that his brothers leave and he goes too. And we'll talk about why that would be. But Jesus is not interested in humoring his brothers. And he uses this line, my time has not yet come. Now, he also will say, my hour has not yet come. He'll use time and he'll use hour. And people will go, what time does this refer to? Does this refer to his, his crucifixion? 
Does this refer simply to his, t- his time to go to the feast? Which is what some would say. My time to go to the feast hasn't come. You could go right now, bro. Like you, like, you, you're fine leaving now. I can't leave now. So his crucifixion. But you might find that you might look in John that often that's our like that, that you'll see hour tied to crucifixion more than just time. Now, some look at this and, and would tie it to there is a moment later where Jesus does come in publicly into Jerusalem. You might know it as like the triumphant entry where, where there is a recognition of him and there is a messianic expectation. And so some, some go, there is a time where Jesus will come in and there will be a, a more public recognition of who he is. And that time has not come. For me, I'm going to put it probably one of those other two, uh, the last two, not crucifixion. I'm going to say triumphant entry tri- or time to go to the feast. Probably one of those two is where I will, where I will land because he contrasts it with his brothers to go, you can go right now. My time hasn't come. Your time's right here. You can go as you want to go, as you ought to go, because the world can't hate you. Now, you will see when he's there, there's some hostility toward the healing he did on the Sabbath still. And this was much earlier. But let's look at John 5.19, because we have to remember that Jesus, this is right after John 5.18, which you've already read, but John 5.19 says... I say to you, this is Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And so Jesus, in this idea, saying to his brothers, you can go now, I can't, because he doesn't listen to his brothers. He's not, he's not going to just listen to what his brother, he's not going to do what his brothers want to do. He's only going to do what his father wants him to do. And then he gives that strong rebuke. He goes, the world can't hate you. It hates me because I testify the world's works are evil. Well, what is he saying there? Think about it. What is Jesus saying to his brothers? The world hates me because I testify about it or against it. It can't hate you because you're a part of it. Jesus' brothers are operating in this instance as agents of the world. Enemies of God to do what the world would have him do. And Jesus is not stepping into that. He is not interested in worldly accolades, worldly pleasure, worldly popularity. His interest is obeying his father. And so he is not bowing to his brother's interest in making his name more popular. He doesn't have a dummy's guide to marketing there in his back pocket, ready to be sure. He knows when to maximize moments and seasons and times. That is not the interest of Jesus. Jesus' interest is to please his father and do what his father put before him. So he will only leave at the right time. And he will only leave in the right way. And that's hard for us. Because, just think about it, this, this festival doesn't last long, week long. 
And you look at verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. Not publicly, but in private. And I think John is helping us understand what's going on here. Because I think John would recognize the same type of objection, which is, wait a minute. Brothers go on to the feast and you're right after them? I mean, what, it, if the feast is only a week, why go up one day late or a half day late or two days? Why do that? It's not that big of a difference in the way that we estimate time, right? You look at time one and go, hey, let's, just go, let's, get, let's spend as much time as we can there. Anybody who plans a vacation knows this. Like, well, what, okay, are we going to go ahead? Are we going to drive all day and then spend one night? Or are we going to get there earlier, leave earlier, take an extra day off? And then everybody plans their vacation around their weekend so you can get really nine days for the price of five work days if you do it right. And so they try to go, how can we maximize the amount of time? Jesus goes up right after his brothers go. He goes up right after that. They leave, and he leaves. Why? Because Jesus will only do what his father puts before him. And a public entrance into Jerusalem at a heightened time that was the wrong time is not on Jesus' agenda. And when I read certain parts of Scripture and I see things like this, it challenges me a lot. One that always sticks with me is in the book of Acts, where Paul has a burden on his second missionary journey to preach. He wants to preach. Now, by show of hands, really, raise your hands here. By show of hands, how many of you think preaching about Jesus is a good idea? Anybody? Yeah, good idea. That's all right. If you don't have your hand raised, I'm going to assume you're not listening. Um, <laughs> not that you think it's a bad idea, okay? So that's what I'll say there. So I would assume that everyone in here would ask, is it good to speak to people about Jesus? We would all say yes, unless you're not a Christian. And then I would totally understand why you would say no. But let's assume... How would a Christian respond to this, right? The shoot Christians say. Yeah, it's a good idea that we would do this. And yet on the second missionary journey, Paul wants to preach, and we read in Acts that the Spirit of Christ prohibited him from preaching. What? That one, if, if I could use the uh, head explosion emoji for that one, that's the one that I would use. Why, when you have a burden to do something that we see in Scripture is the only way people are saved, through preaching and understanding what then God has done for them in Christ, why would you then, why would that same God who has a desire for people to know him prohibit the missionary from preaching in Asia? Why would he do that? Because Paul was supposed to go to Macedonia. In that moment, he was supposed to go to Macedonia. And you might remember in that part in Acts, he has a vision. It's called the Macedonian Call. That's what your Bible kind of bolded title may call it. The Macedonian Call. Where then, and you have this, this, this person that says, come help us in Macedonia. And that's when he realizes Oh, that's where we're supposed to be. Now, now think about this, Genesis. 
How attuned must we be to the Lord to know when to say even no to a good thing? To pursue what he's put before us. And this isn't, for, this isn't me giving you an excuse to be lazy bones, okay? Because I'm a big fan of like, if you're not sure what you're supposed to do, just do what you know is good. Like that's that's kind of my strategy. If you're unsure, do good things until God redirects. And then follow that. That's generally what I'm going to tell you if you want to come into my office, which doesn't really exist, and we sit across the table from each other and talk about you know, what's going on. But we learn this from Jesus. That Jesus doesn't waste a breath. And he was not interested in pleasing his brother's desires or longings for worldly popularity. He didn't want to pursue it. And he could reject it out of hand because he knew what his father had put before him. He was obedient to his father. And I'm grateful, I am grateful that Jesus could do this because I fumble around at it all the time. It's like, what should we do here? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what's best in this moment. I don't know the best way to pursue. I don't know the best decision to make. I'm not sure. I know. I always seek wise counsel. I'll seek all the wise counsel in the world. I feel like I'll get 49% on one side and 51% on another if I'm lucky. We have Jesus, the Son of God, able to walk confidently in this world because he would only do what his Father put before him. And so he did go. Now think about it. Why would he go? Well, he's a Jewish man who perfectly obeys the law. (laughs) Yeah, he's going to go to the feast. He's going to participate in the worshiping life of his people. But he's not going to do it in the way that his unbelieving brothers want him to. And so he goes and the crowds murmur, mutter, grumble, Speak about it. All of right? Everybody has these kind of thoughts on who Jesus is in the room. But no one's going to say anything because they're afraid of coming down on one side or the other because they know the authorities don't like him. And so they speak about him in different ways. So they murmur about Jesus, but they don't trust Jesus. This is like many people in the world. They have opinions about Jesus, but they're not the right opinions. Thoughts about Jesus, but he is not their Lord. Look at what we see here. The Jews were looking for him at the feast saying, where is he? He's about to teach. We'll get to that next week. And there was much muttering, murmuring, grumbling about him among the people. And now look at what people would say. Some would say he is a good man. Others said no. He is leading the people astray. Now, I want you to look at that answer right there, and you will see the exact same secular response to Jesus played out in the world today. 
You have people who would say, Jesus is a good man who taught good things. And if you live by the things Jesus said, <clears throat> you'll be doing okay for yourself. Because there was no one who taught like him. And there was no one who, said, you know, who, who had this kind of way of speaking and understanding how the world worked. And so if you really want a, a, you know, a daily dose of wisdom, then you should sign up for a, a morning Bible verse that's going to give you something from Jesus. Because that's really going to help you get through your day. So Jesus is like your vitamin. You take the Jesus vitamin when you need a kind of shot in the arm or a boost or maybe even feeling down. And so you get some teaching from Jesus to get you feeling better again because you know Jesus is, he, he's good. You go, yeah, and, 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 and your, your kids might get to, your neighbor kids might come over to your house because they know, oh, they're Christians. And, and, you know, hopefully some good ideas rub off on my kids if they go over there because there's something about Jesus and Jesus is good. The other side is you need to stay as far away from Christians as you can because they're the most bigoted, angry, unloving, uncaring, unkind people in the world. And the more people who follow Jesus, the more angry, bitter people you're going to have. You have probably experienced one or both of those responses to Jesus in your life, probably even in the past month. I have, you know, I, I still play the pastor card with people. What do you do? I, you know, I can say I work at a church or I pastor. If I'm feeling real insecure, I'll say I'm a part-time seminary professor just to, you know, that doesn't do me any better, though. Um, so we have this kind of language, and we'll, we'll say these kinds of things. And um, I have, oh, I'm a pastor. In general, now we're in, we're, we're in Texas, like I said, the buckle of the Bible belt. In general... That's responding, oh, great, I'm glad you work at a church. My blah, 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 blah went to a church one time. Or, yeah, we, we sometimes go to this church, and, and that's great. Right? Because, because there's this kind of general, like, oh, yeah, I'm glad you do that. You know, making a difference, helping people. It's like, you know, you just meet somebody, I work at a church. That's great, I'm so glad you work at a church. Uh, I mean, there are parts of our country, there are parts, I'm sure, of spring, where if I go, I work at a church, they're like, get out. Get out. You don't need to be here. You're the reason there are problems. And I'm sure that you walk with the Lord long enough, some of you have been accused of things about yourself that aren't true. Because you're not <clears throat> accommodating enough or tolerant enough or loving enough. And you're like, that's not, that's not, the, that's not it. It's, it's, that, it's that if somebody follows Jesus, I don't want to live by just how I feel. Because I can't trust it. I have to live by what God has revealed. And so I'm not surprised if you or I or you just have the stories of people who either think that Jesus is fine, add him in to the other kinds of teaching, or a lot of hostility because they think that he is everything that's wrong with the world. But don't you see that response right there? He's a good man. He's a good man. And others say, no, he is leading the people astray. He's teaching them the wrong things. But no one is going to put their neck out for it because they, they're, they're not sure where to land. So I, I can feel a certain way, but I'm not going to say it 
Because if I say it too loudly, that's where that idea of muttering or mumbling comes about, grumbling there, is that they're always kind of speaking to one another about it. It's the, it's the small group conversation that goes on or the D group conversation that goes on where, where people will kind of move or wonder or wander. And so that's all a part of what goes on. Many people have opinions of Jesus. But when it comes to articulating who he is, they may not be willing to say, no, he is everything. And I look on this passage. Now, again, we are, we are at the very beginning of a longer portion of Jesus at the feast. And he's about to teach at the feast. He's going to stand up and he's going to speak. And people are going to respond. And it wouldn't be uncommon for people to speak at a feast. It's not like, you know, <clears throat> here's people who teach. And there's rabbis who are there. And rabbis have followers. And followers listen. And so that somebody with followers, who was Jesus, would speak at a feast would not be unexpected. So we'll see Jesus speak. And we'll see people questioning who he is. And we'll see his responses to them as they wonder about his authority and where he gets it from. Because Jesus didn't have any credential, any rabbinical credential. But one thing is I just kind of go, what, what do I see here? What do we see here, Lord? This is something I want us to remember. And you can find this time and time again in Scripture, but we see it highlighted again right here, specifically with regard to popularity, how the world works, the kind of attention we give to Jesus which is often the wrong kind, is that we must remember, and it's hard for us to remember, that God's approach to life is going to be wildly different than the world's. And you live seven days a week in this world. And honestly, most of us in this room drink seven days a week from this world. We give a lot of our mind, a lot of our attention, a lot of our emotions, a lot of our thoughts, and a lot of our monies to the world training us <clears throat> in its view of righteousness and in its view of popularity. And we give rather little attention to the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, I'm, just, I'm speaking in generalities. I don't have any one person in mind except for three of you. <clears throat> Did somebody say Amen. Amen. I'm one of them. Uh, it is hard in a world that wants you to popularize yourself to say that is not the way of Jesus. That is not the way of Jesus. That is not that he must increase, I must decrease. That is, I must increase so that he must decrease, or he must inc increase, and then maybe I'll increase. If I can just latch on to his coattails, I'll go along for the ride. As Jesus' stock is up, mine's up. No. Jesus operates differently with how the world looks at popularity. He operates differently in what obedience is. He is not concerned about the familial connection that his brothers might have, where they're trying to convince him of something else. He says, no. And I have to say that the, the dominant Mediterranean family is going to be family first. That's what's going to happen. The way in which 
the Mediterranean world family would operate, think back to John chapter 2. Jesus, fix this problem. That's what his mother is saying to him. Fix this problem. And he, is, he speaks back. What does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? From the beginning, Jesus is separating himself out as different from his family unit. And that's hard. That's hard. There might be a conversation that you know you need to have with your family. That you've just been putting off. Because you don't want to offend. I get it. But I'd rather offend my earthly family than disobey my Lord. Jesus testifies against the world. Calls it evil. Calls their ways evil. This is not popular. And yet, what do we see? Why is this important? Because all people still make a response to Jesus. We must remember what we see in Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everybody responds to Jesus. Everybody. So I would ask you, how do you respond? How do you look at Jesus? How do you see his ways? Are they foreign to you? Are they confusing to you? Does that bit of confidence he has in obeying his father, does that seem difficult? It is difficult. How do we respond to a savior who only does what his father says? We see crowds who speak about him but will not actually testify about who he is because they just, they don't want to, they, they just want to keep their opinions to themselves or to their small group. We'll just talk about it here. Never really have to say it because right here is an opinion. But everybody is going to speak about who he is at his return. And I pray that you would recognize him as Lord now, as Savior now, as the one you need now. Not as the one who, when he returns, you go, oh, is, is that... That was true. Yeah, it was true. It's always been true. He is our Lord. He is the one that is worth listening to. He is our everything. And yet, his ways are so different from the world's ways. I pray that we can hear his voice always speaking to us from his word, that our lives might align with what is true and that we, we would be okay when those worldly pressures come in at us and try and get us to course correct or move a different way that we could look at the world and go, no, I will not. I will not because I know what my God says. 
and I'll hold to that. And I will take offense thrown my way, frustration thrown my way. I am okay being misunderstood by the crowds. I am okay being misunderstood and not even liked by my family. Because I know who Jesus is. And I will walk with him. It is worth it. He is 